Welcome to 35 West. I'm Ryan Bird, director of the Americas program at CSIS and host of the 35 West podcast. With how professional the Mexican but are we ready? I don't reform friends in Argentina. Right. And that's what happened. No role at all in the NAFTA negotiations. Welcome to 35 West. I'm Ryan Bird, director of the Americas program at CSIS and the co-host of the 35 West podcast. With more than a half a year to go until Election Day, campaigning is well underway in Mexico. The election on June 2nd next year promises to be a seminal moment for Mexican politics and society on a number of fronts. In particular, the race has made headlines as a contest between two women, former Mexico City Mayor Claudio Scheinbaum on one hand and Senator Xochitl Galvez on the other, promising to herald Mexico's first female president. But the race is also a test of the staying power of current president Andres Manuel López Obrador's Morena party, and whether its breakout success in 2018 can be translated into sustained influence over Mexican politics. With presidential elections set to take place in the United States as well shortly thereafter, the coming year promises to bring a confluence of forces which will shape North America and the hemisphere as a whole. To cover a spate of upcoming elections in Latin America and the Caribbean, 35 West podcast is hosting a special series of conversations, El Rumbo Democratico, or The Democratic Path, to furnish listeners with insights into the region's most important elections. Today, we are delighted to be joined by Alma Caballero, Managing Director with McLarty Associates Northern Latin America Practice. In this episode, we will dig into the campaign thus far, similarities and differences between the candidates, and how U.S.-Mexico relations will impact and be impacted by the outcome of the election. Thank you for joining us today, Alma. Ryan, thank you so much for the invitation. A key question and an issue we at CSIS have paid close attention to is what impact the last six years of AMLO's presidency will have on the term of his successor. Alma, in your opinion, what is the primary legacy that President López Obrador will imprint on Mexican politics after leaving office? Well, Ryan, to start off this, with the answer for this question, I'd like to remind the audience of the landslide victory that AMLO achieved in 2018. He was able to attract 53% of the vote by riding on a populist wave of citizen dissatisfaction and a rejection of Mexican government elites. And that was a reality and much of the support that he was able to gain. He has been able to achieve a popularity rate that is hovering around 60% throughout five years in office. And that is something that is, as we know, in the U.S. and in other countries that, that, that we cover, very difficult to achieve. And his party, Morena, which is a relatively new party, has also been successful in gaining majority in Congress and control over the legislative agenda, despite the fact that they lost the two-thirds majority requirement for constitutional change in, in Mexico. It's also important to underscore how AMLO considers himself, and he considers himself to be a leader of a movement aimed at what he calls the fourth transformation of Mexico. And this transformation is basically surrounding the entrenched social political order in Mexico. And his rhetoric revolves around it, and it revolves around addressing poverty, reducing inequality, eradicating corruption, redistributing political and economic power from the hands of what he calls the mafia del poder, or the elite groups backing and transferring that back to the people. And his pursuit of his objectives, AMLOS, has been characterized by a couple of, of items, one of which is 
the authoritarian tendencies that has been so crucial to the way that he's governed and a very populist approach to governance. And we've seen that in how Mexico has declined on democratic index. We see Mexico's democracy index fell from 6.19 in 2018 to 5.2 out of a 10 scale in 2023. And because of this, he's been also very exceptional in just how he creates this anti-systematic and anti-elite narrative that he controls on a daily basis through his mañanera that everybody knows about. And that has also led to a polarizing in Mexican society where he constantly criticizes checks and balances, including the Supreme Court, including the Electoral Institute, the INE, including media outlets, portraying them as corrupt, seeking them to reclaim lost privileges. So this disregard for democratic norms and institutions has all not only been exemplified through his narrative, but also through the actions, and particularly the growing involvement of the armed forces in some areas of Mexico that were not traditionally being governed by the armed forces, like it's on the economic affairs of the state and key public administration tasks. So that has allowed the AMLO government, particularly AMLO, to reduce civilian oversight in much of how the administration's activities are conducted. And that has opened the door to a very discretional way of decision making. So that I would say is another element that characterizes the AMLO administration and will be inherited by whoever is elected in next year's election. In addition to that, I would also say that part of the legacy is this confrontational governance style that has been so pillared to AMLO. And that has, as I mentioned before, polarized Mexican society. We're seeing that now around 50% of Mexican population consider the country to be more divided than it was before. And you can even see that in the disapproval ratings that AMLO himself has had. In January 2019, his disapproval rating was 14%. That has increased to around 35% now. And even anecdotally, Ryan, you see this increasing frequency of a civil exchange between those that support AMLO and Morena and those that are opposed. And you see it in social media, but even in the WhatsApp family chats that everyone is part of in Mexico or even in your in the streets. So I think that after six years of Morena rule, the 2024 elections will serve as a referendum of AMLO's tenure with a huge polarization in the country with an undermining of institutional checks and balances that have been present in this administration and with an increased role of the military throughout much of the activity of the country. And also this confrontational style of governance with members of the opposition, particularly media, the business sector, and those that are in contrast ideas to what the president stands for. From a chaotic primary process that saw Foreign Secretary and Presidential hopeful Marcelo Ebrard barred from entering the building where Morena announced its selection to ongoing uncertainty as to the other candidates who plan to enter the race, Mexico's electoral season has certainly gotten off to a hectic start. Morena, for the time being, however, appears to have succeeded in averting the fears of an internal split. Are there signs that the party is better institutionalized than observers may have predicted? Morena remains the favorite party in Mexico. We cannot forget that. It has around a 49% preference. The second place is Acción Nacional Pan with around 16%. And on the other hand, you have what many Mexicans consider to be the worst party, the PRI, with a rejection of around 35%. 
And then Morena following that with 29%. So that's just a glimpse as to the division that we're seeing on just the party structure and the electoral's views on that. When we talk about Morena, though, we cannot forget that Morena is a movement around one individual. And that individual is AMLO. And I usually say that AMLO is a glue of Morena. And in my view of his perhaps ambition post-presidency will be is how to consolidate that movement into a party and a structure that prevails without him and consolidate and institutionalize that movement. However, that movement is very powerful. Yet now they control 22 states, Mexico's 32 states, for example. The election in 2024 will not only elect the president, but 97 million eligible voters will have the opportunity to vote for around 20,000 contested seats. That includes the presidency, the entire federal legislature, which is 128 seats and 500 seats in, in the lower house in the Chamber of Deputies, nine governorships and thousands of local positions. And among the nine governorships, Morena is supposed to win the majority of them, or at least that's what the polls are indicating. However, we cannot also forget the 2021 midterm elections, where Morena lost its two-thirds supermajority in Congress, and this allowed the opposition to block the president's party from pursuing constitutional reforms. And they also lost much of the city of Mexico, which then allowed Morena to reinvigorate itself and put together an approach for 2024 that we've seen been unfolding over the last couple of years. So they basically renewed that offense against its opponent, setting a very interesting stage for June 2nd, 2024, which will be the day of the election. So with that said, I would say that we cannot undermine the power that Morena right now has. We cannot undermine also the power that the president has in delineating the path forward for Morena. And of course, you're going to have voices and internal conflicts within Morena, which we saw, as you correctly pointed out, in light of the election internal process for the candidate, even though Claudia Sheinbaum, who is now the party's candidate for next year's election, was known for many years now to be the favorite of the president to lead the ticket. And even you saw the espectaculares or the billboards of her even prior to the launch of the internal process to elect. So, of course, that's going to create some tension internally, and we'll see how that will unfold next year. What I can say, though, it's interesting to see the recent announcement from Claudia Sheinbaum in the composition of her team. And that I think is a clear indicator also reflecting the realities within Morena, where many of the members of Morena that were part much of the political structure of the movement have been tasked with delivering a clear victory results for her and for the party in what they will be responsible for, which is much more on the political side and strategy of the campaign. But then you see the team that she announced over the weekend that is much more technical in background that perhaps are not party affiliates, but that have a track record and experience in government, not exclusive to Morena, that are part of her much more technical and platform team. So I think that it will be an interesting relationship that we'll see unfolding in the months to come, where you have the technical advisory team that is closest to her as a candidate interact with the much more political and party system that will be also a key to driving the result that they're hoping to achieve next year. So that's what I would say on the, on the Morena internal dynamics. Many observers have raised concerns that AMLO will use the power of his office to skew the election towards Sheinbaum. 
whether through the power of the bully pulpit or more actively by defunding institutions like the INE. Since September, to what extent have these fears been borne out? AMLO holds great, great influence over the public sentiment. And he has the power to shape the electoral preference, as we've seen, because he has a huge megaphone that he uses every single morning. And he is very acutely aware of this. This is not random. And he has leveraged that extensive reach of his daily press briefings, which are widely followed. So you have an average of 440,000 people tuning daily to watch his daily mañaneras only on YouTube, for example. That's a fact that I that it's very interesting to see because he he knows his reach and he understands the power of that tool that he uses to steer public discussion. Even, Ryan, the way that we speak, he's introduced a new vocabulary amongst Mexicans. Between fifis and chairos, you now see many people use those words as part of their dialect. So that has been intensified through the power of that microphone. Ahead of the 2024 election, of course, AMLO is expected to use this platform to champion Morena candidates, while at the same time attempting to undermine the opposition figures that we've seen over the last couple of months. And he even did that this morning, where he said that he couldn't be objective when trying to talk about the candidate of Morena. So I do expect that, that Morena will double down in the power of, of the Mañaneras. No? So, so that's something to expect. But then at the same time, it's important to look into the social spending and how that has been a pillar of his administration. And that agenda is only expected to increase funding for the priority programs. We are expecting 21% increase in 2024 in those priority programs. Um, welfare and pension program spending has tripled from $8 billion in 2018 to 24 billion in 2023. And this hike in 2024 and what we're expecting has a particular emphasis on the elderly pension program, which will experience a 30% budget increase from 2023. And then we're also more broadly in the Ministry of, of Bienestar or the, or the Welfare or Wellbeing Ministry are expecting an increase that will amount in total since 2018 to a 277% hike. So that is also emblematic of what we're expecting, not only where the president's voice will have great influence, but also where the funding and the budget allocation for next year we're seeing being directed to. And while this budget allocation is within the legal boundaries, um, those use of public funds is clearly geared towards cultivating political support from Mexico's most economic disadvantaged segments of the population, which constitutes around 40%, 36% of the population. So that's a huge, of course, contributing chunk of the electorate that he understands will be vital for the vote next year and where not only the voice, but the funding expected for next year will contribute to what we're seeing unfolding on the role of the state. That's why you see many of service of Mexico, saying that this is not going to be an equal playing field for the opposition candidate with the Morena candidate, because the Morena candidate is expected to have the state and the power of the voice of the president behind her campaign as well. I want to ask you a question about electoral violence, which along with insecurity are growing threats to the integrity of Mexico's electoral process. How can we expect Mexico's security challenges to impact the elections as we approach June 2nd? Ryan, this is one of the most critical and severe concerns and realities that Mexico is unfortunately facing. 
and that the next administration will inherit and have to deal with it. On security, the Anglo administration has been unable to reduce the levels of violence despite its novel approach, abrazos no balazos, hugs not bullets. And what happened in this administration is that the Anglo administration decided to depart from their predecessor's emphasis on confrontation with organized criminal groups, opting instead for approach to seeking and improved on the living conditions and create employment opportunities for underprivileged youth through a program that they launched. And the aim there was to reduce much of the labor supply that we saw in organized crime in, in, in Mexico. But of course, this did not conduce to results or to success. This is a failed security strategy. During the Obama administration, we have witnessed the highest levels of violence in the nation's history, with homicides exceeding 30,000 per year throughout his administration. That's a rate of 25 per 100,000 people. That was in, in last year in 2022. And this, of course, is coupled with the terrible feminicide rates in Mexico, where more than 10 women are killed daily. And in addition to that, we have also huge levels of impunity. More than 90% of crimes go unpunished in Mexico. Only seven in 100 homicide cases are resolved. So this is truly the Achilles heel of Mexico. And it's so sad to see and to witness and to experience. And it's a reality that will be inevitable for any of the candidates who is elected to have to deal with it. However, we often forget to mention how the security situation in Mexico is not homogeneous. You see this differ depending on where in the country you're looking into the security situation. 50% of the country's homicides are concentrated in six states of Mexico. Those are Guanajuato, Estado de México, Chihuahua, Michoacán, Jalisco, and Baja California. And you have their homicide rates as high as 67 per 100,000 uh, inhabitants. But then on the other side of that, you see the bottom 50% of the states experience less than 14% of Mexico's homicides. To put this into perspective, for example, you see Mexico City, which is the nation's capital and the economic hub of the country, that has a homicide rate of eight per 100,000, comparable to many cities in the U.S., like Los Angeles, it's 10 per 100,000, Boston has six, and it's significantly better than even Washington, D.C., where you have 28 per 100,000 people, and where Atlanta is for 33 homicides per 100,000 people. So. When we talk about security, it's important to underscore the severity of the situation, but also the heterogeneity throughout the country and recognizing the reality and putting together a team and a strategy that is able to address that situation in a real way is something that will be key to whoever is elected next year. Let's talk about the candidates for a second. Both frontrunners have dramatically different visions for the future of Mexico. But amid this sharp divergence, there are likely to be some areas of convergence, as well as challenges both would face in trying to govern once elected. Claudia Scheinbaum has acquired a reputation as something of a mini AMLO, yet on the campaign trail, she appears to be increasingly coming into her own within the Morena Party framework. To what extent can we expect her to depart from certain AMLO-era policies if elected? Shingbaum is a member of, of the Morena Party and is viewed as a loyal AMLO ally who is campaigning on a continuity of the fourth transformation. You know, of what, of what we discussed before and, and how AMLO views himself and his role in history in terms of Mexico's political history. Prior to governing Mexico City, Shingbaum held positions in local government in academia. 
So it's a little bit different from Angel, uh, particularly in her training and where she comes from. She served as a mayor of Tlalpan in Mexico City. Before that, she served as Mexico City's environmental secretary under the Lopez Obrador administration when he was head of Mexico City. She has been a faculty member of UNAM. She has written several publications on environmental science, sustainability, and energy transition. So that's different from Angulo. She holds a PhD and a master's degree in energy engineering, as well as a bachelor's degree in physics. And she even did some study abroad in, in Berkeley, also in the U.S. So I think that that's important to underscore her training and how she thinks as a scientist, because she is. And when thinking about whether she's a mini AMLO or not, I think it's important just to underscore her background, her training, and the approach that we should expect for her going into office through that lens. I would say that from when she was officially announced to be the candidate, she has had a commanded lead in the polls, around 20-point difference with the Galvis. And because of that, we see many members of civil society and even from the business sector, right, begin to engage with her and her team. And she has made some concrete efforts to build bridges with some of those sectors that have traditionally not supported AMLO or have been on the contrary side to the president or his party. So we'll see what her priorities and platform is that is expected to be launched in the upcoming months as part of the official timeline of the election period or campaign period. What we've seen, though, is the team that she's assembled on the substantive part, which is actually more technical, as I mentioned, in background. And we'll see from that team what comes out as to the actual proposals and policies that are expected to emerge from a Shangbaum presidency. I would say, though, that the presidentialist system in Mexico is very powerful, and we cannot undermine that either when evaluating what would the next president, whoever is elected, will result in, and even what the role of AMLO post-presidency would look like as well. So it's a very presidentialist system with huge power, and I think that cannot be overlooked. So I do think that the main difference is her background and the scientific lens that is expected for her to utilize when thinking about public policy. She certainly comes from a more technocratic policy-making background than, than I know. Now, on the yeah, other side, yeah. we have Xochitl Galvez, who leads a coalition assembled expressly to compete with AMLO and Morena. What challenges might this structure present for her after the election and maintaining unity among the coalition members long enough to implement any sort of mandate? Mm-hmm. Well, the PAN, PRI, and the PRD, who are traditionally opposed each other, have very ideological diverse positions, or historically, that's what they've all represented, very different segments of Mexican electorate. And this time around, they decided to form a coalition called the Frente Amplio because they needed to counter Morena's influence and the president's high approval ratings and, and go united against it. And that is, I would say, the right approach right now to have a chance, because separately they were not going to have any chance, so they need to consolidate and present a united front. However, some of them do suffer from low approval ratings and a perceived government corruption or a culture of privilege that has predominated, right? So as we discussed earlier, you see some polls indicating that the PRI, for example, is considered to be the worst party right now in Mexico. However, despite that outlook or perception about the parties, 
you see this hopeful and force of Sochi. She is somebody that's not widely known in Mexico. She's a former businesswoman turned senator with indigenous background whose public image sharply contrasts with AMLO's portrayal of what the opposition is or represents, which is a wealthy elitist conservative. And she has an incredible story of perseverance and resilience that is a real threat to the notion of what we have been thought of a political elite, right? And, and that has been part of Bando's narrative. So I think that makes her a, a very noteworthy challenge to Morena. However, she has to be able to consolidate and inject hope into the electorate because she, as we discussed before, will have to also balance the party's realities and internal tensions. If we we're talking about Claudia Sheinbaum, for example, and the reality within the Morena structure and the internal tensions that arise, imagine now Sochi having to deal with that with three parties as part of that coalition. So she will have to also be able to manage that and also be humble enough as a united opposition force in recognizing that people are tired of the past, that are disillusioned with the present and want a change in direction and in policy and what they see from their politicians moving forward. So I think that is one of the main challenges that she will have to deal with internally. And in addition to that, the, the also lower name recognition that she has, because it was even a surprise to her, Ryan, that she, I'm sure, is the presidential candidate. Even four or five months ago, nobody was expecting this phenomenon to come out of, of Sochi. So she has a steep ladder to climb in the sense of making herself known and what she thinks and what she proposes and the team that will be joining her. We have yet to know who exactly will be part of that team on the substantive part of the platform that she will be advocating for. So I think that is one of the main challenges that she'll have to deal with. And all of this while trying to inject optimism and a vision that offers a promising alternative to a very powerful Morena and a very powerful president right now. So that's what I would say. Similar to we're talking about the Morena candidate, Xochitl has a technical background. She holds an engineering degree from UNAN. She, as I mentioned, comes from an indigenous background from Hidalgo. And through education and through training, she was able to move to Mexico City, start her own company, and then enter into government. So Regardless of who is elected in June 2024, the likelihood of Mexico seeing its first woman president is very high. And that is an inspiring and exciting moment for the country's history. I couldn't agree more. Let's talk about the double elections, the simultaneous elections that we have going on in both the United States and in Mexico, near simultaneous. And with dual elections in the United States and Mexico next year, domestic political developments are likely to spill over and impact the rhetoric and political fortunes of candidates within both countries. Mexico and the United States alike have a golden opportunity to strengthen trade ties and capture the benefits of nearshoring, but alignment on issues of trade, energy, and industrial policy between the two countries have been slow to coalesce. What priorities should any new government in Mexico pursue to energize the nearshoring movement? Yeah. The first would be to guarantee certainty in protecting investment in Mexico, because we've seen in the last couple of years how many investment or projects were put 
into question by the current administrations not wanting to honor existing contracts. So I think ensuring that there is certainty that any investment that is made to Mexico will be protected is key and is fundamental. In addition to that, a strong rule of law. When we mentioned about the security issues, for example, and the huge levels of impunity, any company trying to assess whether to expand their operations in Mexico or enter Mexico to relocate its supply chain out of other markets is fundamental. In the much more technical aspect of nearshoring, there is huge excitement about nearshoring, and it's become the sexy word in everybody's vocabulary on nearshoring, nearshoring, nearshoring. But there are some fundamental investments that have to take place in order for that gap between the expectation becomes not only an expectation, but a materialization of that investment and that huge opportunity that Mexico could benefit from. So when we think about that is first infrastructure, general infrastructure is needed in in Mexico from ports to highways to communication between the south and the north. So that is one area that should be considered and thought through in the investment part of the budget allocation for the next administration. The second one is energy. And there has to be, and finding the right energy matrix to combine all sorts of energy inputs from renewable energy to redefining the energy matrix and their payments will be key, for example. So energy will be a second pillar of, of, of nearshoring. And the third one is water. What we have to do to make sufficient water sustainable in in, in Mexico, 68%, for example, of water is misused because of old infrastructure. So that's where the infrastructure part and the water part are combined. In recent years, we've seen water shortages increase due to droughts. There was a study from the World Bank on water shortages where the country's average annual water availability per capita went from 10,000 cubic meters in 1960 to 4,000 in 2012. And by 2030, that number is expected to drop below 3,000. So that's a real issue. And there, the agriculture sector, for example, has a huge role to play because 70% of the water consumption is in the ag sector and not in manufacturing. And part of that is just infrastructure, which is old and antiquated and not productive. So I think that's those are the three key sectors on the nearshoring trend that Mexico should focus on and, and consider. And with that, I think when we think about nearshoring and why Mexico is well positioned to take advantage of it, Mexico is the 14th largest economy in the world. It's expected to grow 3.2% next year. It has the strongest levels of FDI that were being seen in, in the last couple of years, accumulated $29 billion during the first half of 2023 only. It has a unique geographical location, being part of North America, but also Latin America. It has a young, dynamic population. 50% of the 130 million people in Mexico are under the age of 30, for example. So that's promising in the labor force and, and what could come out in Mexico. It's a highly open economy. It is the United States' largest trading partner. Over 1.4 million is trade among the U.S.-Mexico border every minute. And it has stable macroeconomic conditions, an autonomy central bank, and a low debt to GDP ratio that we're seeing right now compared to other Latin American countries. So that makes Mexico present with a golden opportunity to Mexico. It will depend on government to ensure that the protections and the rules of the game are set and respected and that they can capitalize among this crucial moment and opportunity that external factors are also contributing to that moment. 
And one of that external factors is also what USMCA, the US-Mexico-Canada trade agreement, represents as an anchor to Mexico and to attracting that investment in light of the nearshoring. So I think that those factors are important to consider when thinking about Mexico, but also recognizing the other challenges that we've already addressed in the sense of the relationship between the private and the public sector, the discretionality amongst decision-making, the militarization and increased role that it has in the economy, et cetera. So that's what I would say on your shore. Alma, this has been a very wide-ranging conversation, but I want to ask you if you have anything else to add, something that we did not cover in our conversation, something you'd like to highlight or add. I would just say that the upcoming six months will be intense, will be dynamic will be exciting. And I would encourage that on the Mexico side, for the two leading candidates to not forget to visit Washington, because Washington is key to the bilateral relationship. And on the US side, to not underestimate what Mexico means to the United States, and that what happens in Mexico also matters to what happens in the United States. And that how we began prior to this conversation, we have this terrible notion of Latin America as el patrio trasero. We're not the backyard of anybody. We have to make sure that a deeper understanding of what Latin America is, of the history of Latin America, of the people of Latin America, are not only put into one bucket, but actually having the desire to strengthen the relationship and getting to know better, in this particular case, Mexico, and the complexities and the nuances and the realities that it has, but also the importance that it creates to the United States. So I would say that. And then what to expect also from the Lopez Obrador administration moving forward. I don't expect him for him to be a linked up president. So we should expect more decrees and more decisions to come through in the next months. On the electoral cycle, that will predominate the focus of decisions and also of just the discourse in, in Mexico. So Let's wait and see and follow this closely. And I'm very thankful, Ryan, for the invitation to talk a little bit about this. It makes sense of what will be a very hectic electoral cycle in Mexico in, in this podcast. Alma Caballero, Managing Director with McClarty Associates Northern Latin America Practice. Thanks for joining us on 35 West. We appreciate you taking the time to speak with us. Thank you. For you, thank you for joining. Stay tuned for the next episode of 35 West. <laughs>